We are, um, we're in Genesis, we're coming, to, uh, uh, coming towards the end of our time in Genesis where we have been looking through the story or the narrative of Genesis from the creation account and we're going all the way through the Tower of Babel for very specific reasons. Most scholars see that as one big narrative block. Uh, and there's all sorts of meaning in it. As you've, hopefully, as you've seen as we've been going through this process, uh, these early books of Genesis aren't just this like weird, dry history that just doesn't have anything to do with us. All of the major and important doctrines of the Christian faith are being laid down and laid out in those first chapters. Uh, and so we wanted to go through those as a church to, to help everybody see that what we believe as confessional Reformed Presbyterians isn't something that was made up in the 15th century. It's things that are embedded into the Bible from the very, very earliest of, of the history of the earth or the history of God's salvation. And so we've gotten through a, a bunch of, we just went through the flood narrative. Super exciting. Uh, flood, destruction, chaos. And now... Uh, we're seeing all that excitement start to fade into the past, and we see, the, we see the family settling into the routine of the new world, and we're going to see what starts cracking off as soon as that happens. So first, let's pray, and let's ask God to illuminate our hearts and our minds to the scripture. Without the illumination of God, we might as well be reading the phone book up here, but through the Holy Spirit, God can show us beautiful things about himself and about Jesus and about his plan for the world. So let's pray. Lord, uh, first we come to you in humility and prayer, Lord, as best we can with our prideful fallen hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and minds to show us the meaning of these words that you have so uh, lovingly protected and cared for throughout the ages so that they have come down to us, Gentiles, 2,000 years after the fact, living on the other side of the world, Lord. That in itself is a remarkable, a remarkable fact. And yet you promise to do more than that. You promise that by the power of your spirit, you will illuminate our minds. You will give us the ability to see and peer deeply into your word to see the true meaning of what you intended by it, not what we think or what we intend. And that is a good thing. So Lord, we pray that you would do that now. Open our minds and hearts to the text. Help us to see the beauty of Christ. Help us to live into that beauty. Um, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify us, your afflicted ones. Would you please stand now for the reading of God's word? The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and these three, and from these three, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine 
and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servant shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I worked my way through Bible college painting cars. It was kind of a, a miraculous thing that God had done for me coming out of it, like a tr- just a completely broken path. Uh, I had no skills except for rock star and drug dealer, and no one was hiring rock stars or drug dealers that day. And I said to God, I would really like to paint cars because I thought that would be cool. He got me this job painting cars in a restoration Lamborghini and Ferrari shop. Just as a way of God, what God so often does in the early lives of believers to say, just overt goodness, just showering goodness and blessing on, on, on early, early believers to show people what he's really like. Did we just lose the lights? Is there a power outage? I guess not, because I'm still on. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We'll work on getting those lights turned back on. <laughs> You're not going to start shooting lasers off next, are you? No smoke machine. Okay, there they are. Good. Where was I? Oh, so I worked. I was painting cars in this Lamborghini shop. When we, bit, we did full custom restorations of, of one of the first supercars uh, called a Lamborghini Mira. And these cars, we made them perfect. As perfect as anything could be in a fallen universe, right? But you'd be surprised at all the effort we went through to eradicate corrosion on the metal of those cars. We'd get them in and they would go through scraping uh, and grinding and we would cut pieces out and we would put them through a multi-stage chemical bath uh, and then when we got the paint, finally the cars got into the paint booth. A paint booth, a professional paint booth, is much like, uh, like a laboratory clean room. There's huge, powerful fans that create a negative pressure. And when you go in that room, you go in with a full Tyvek suit and a hood uh, and gloves, and you're completely covered up like you're going in to work on viruses or something. And why is that? The reason was because... One speck of rust or oil or water, even, even the slightest fingerprint accidentally left on the car would eventually begin corroding the metal and eventually it would bubble up as rust, as corrosion for, through that beautiful, perfectly manicured surface for all the world to see. It was almost impossible to fully eradicate sin or the corruption of that metal. And sin is kind of like the same thing with us and humanity. Now you might think, you might think that God's purpose in the flood was to eradicate sin once and for all. Kind of sounds like that, right? Sin had gotten so great in the world, God's gonna make a new start. Here's righteous Noah and his family. Uh, We're just going to eradicate sin by washing it off the face of the earth and then we're gonna have a whole new start and everything's gonna be good. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. 
Uh, because unfortunately, as we have all come to suspect, if you've walked in the Christian life for any amount of time, that uh, no matter how hard you scrub, no matter how much you cut out, no matter how much you try to clean yourself up, sin is almost impossible to eradicate. It's always there just beneath the surface waiting to bubble up and make itself known to you and to the world. And that's what we see here. It's hard to say exactly how long past the end of the flood, how long it's been since Noah and everybody got out of the boat. But it hasn't been long. And what do we see? We see that sin is already starting to bubble back up to the surface. And not just in the sinners. It's bubbling back to the surface in the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And that should tell us something. Uh, It should tell us that sin is so hard-baked into the fallen human condition that nothing short of a whole new humanity is able to fix it. And that's what we see happening in the text. So let's look at that one part at a time. Let's look at sin being hard-baked into the fallen human condition by first, let's look at Noah, the righteous drunk. Uh, we did a series, one of my favorite series we've ever done, called The Epic Fails of the Patriarchs a few years ago. Trying to show out, uh, kind of just really like digging deep into the reality that the, the heroes of faith of the Old Testament uh, were not just these, these paragons of faith and virtue that were called to emulate, but they in fact were sinners just like us. So we looked at, uh, you know, we did a... Abraham, the 50-50 father of faith. <laughs> and we did, uh, we did uh, Moses, the world's angriest humble man. And Noah was on that list to do, but we, didn't have, we just didn't have enough dates to do it. And I was always hoping to revisit this. So what we would have done, if we had more time, Noah, the righteous drunk. Let's put a couple of verses together that's in this passage that are usually, we, uh, we don't usually think about them together, but let me, write, let me read two verses right together and, and just see how this sounds to you. This is from uh, chapter 6, verse 9, and chapter 9, 21, the beginning and the end of this narrative of the flood. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He would drink the wine and get drunk and lay around naked in his tent. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) Slight author's translation in there. But you get the point, right? The ESV, you read it in our our main translation, English Standard Version. Kind of gives you the impression that this was just like a super one-off event. Like, you just kind of caught Noah off guard, and man, he never did that again. I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, maybe... But the Hebrew allows for taking this, and the verb forms is habitual action in the past, meaning this is what Noah would do. Even if this one particular time highlighted is uh, a crucial event in the life of this, but really, I think it's completely fair to just say, hey, Noah planted a vineyard. He would drink the wine and get drunk and lay around naked in his tent. Uh, 
And see, here's the thing. I mean, we laugh at that, right? But because of our chronological snobbery, we tend to think of ancient Near Eastern people as like one or two, uh, you know, steps up the ladder from caveman, basically. Ignorant, uh, primitive. Of course they laid around in the tent naked. That's what cavemen do. However, that's just not true. It's our chronological snobbery that does that. The ancient Near East had a highly developed sense of social decorum. That often puts our own to shame. Uh, and in that, in that culture, uh, nakedness was symbolic of sin. See, they didn't, they didn't live in a, in a they didn't live in a material culture that was so spiritually blinded we can't make these connections any longer. They lived in a, in a, in a world that was very close with God and his action in the world and their, and their understanding of it. And so the sin, like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden they realize they're naked. They realize their nakedness, the sin that's corrupted them and the shame that comes with that and that just became part of uh, their understanding of the world. You didn't lie around your tent naked because it was, it, was, it was putting on display your shame and your sin and your nakedness. It was a way, way, way heavier thing than we think of, right? So, I mean, look, as much as getting drunk and laying around naked in your apartment is frowned upon today, 10 times worse in that culture, at least. 10 times worse. I mean, even in the parable of, in the parable of the, of the son who, uh, what's it, the prodigal son, right? When the father lifts his, like, tunic up, exposing his legs to go run after his son, it, it's, a, it's God, is, it's, it was so scandalous for people to read that a, that a you know, Jewish man would do that. It was God, like, impressing upon us. You know, God is so excited about our return to him that he just lift his skirt up and run, run to meet us on the road. So, man, it's not a good thing. And, and, and people would be shocked by reading this, right? Uh, well, here's the thing, man. You know, it's not so much the act that Noah was getting drunk. It's, it's more, why was Noah getting drunk? Man, there's a lot of reasons why people get blind drunk. None of them good. Uh, I happen to have some experience in this, right? Several of our leadership, we happen to have a lot of experience with this. And there's always something deeper going on. Getting blind drunk isn't the problem. Getting blind drunk is, is, your, is the solution for the problem that you have. And so who knows what it was. You know, maybe some deep sadness or loss, but it could be some underlying bitterness or resentment and you know, poisoned Noah's soul, made life, living life sober so intolerable that he's getting drunk. Maybe anger and jealousy or some other, you know, maybe he got in a big fight with the missus or was, you know, alienated from the missus on the boat. That's pretty rough a whole year on the boat with the family. You can't get more than 400 feet away from each other. You know, I guarantee there was some friction there. Maybe anger, maybe jealousy, maybe resentment, maybe bitterness. 
It's something that leaves you with this gnawing and irritable sense of restless dissatisfaction that alcohol has the power to mask for a little bit. And so what was it? What's up with Noah? Why is he getting drunk? I don't know. I don't know, but what I do know is this. Here he is, literally fresh off the boat of God's undeserved blessing and salvation and favor and family and a whole new world prepared for him. And yet here he is, already bitter about something. (laughs) Already bitter about something. And isn't that the truth? Maybe some of your old hearts just dropped into your stomach right now. Mine did. Maybe that made you angry. Isn't that the truth? How often, how often do we let some little annoyance, which usually, more often than not, is, God, is a God-ordained trial to grow us out of our selfishness, which really is causing our trouble, uh, but we see that as some sort of bothersome thing and forget about everything else that God has done for us and focus on that one little thing and we get all bitter. All bitter in the midst of salvation and blessing and promise. And we could talk about that all day, but I'll leave that for you and the Holy Spirit on the drive home. So look, Noah, righteous Noah, yes, why? Because he had found favor with God. God graciously, uh, God graciously uh, called him to himself. But righteous Noah, big sinner, big sinner. But not the only one, right? He's not really even the sin focus in this passage. Ham Ham's the big sinner. Let's look at Ham. (laughs) Hold on. Ham is the bad seed. Let's look at Ham. We'll talk later, buddy, okay? Promise. Uh, Ham is the bad seed. What exactly did Ham do that was so bad? It doesn't really even seem like he, you know, from us, from our social, you know, and our cultural standpoint, it doesn't seem that bad, right? I mean, how many times if, how many times have you walked in on your friend like super drunk, laying around his house naked, and then went out and told all your homies, "Wow, dude, you're not going to believe what's up with homies laying around. He is so drunk." Everybody, right? No, just me. <laughs> Uh, well, you know what I mean. You know what I'm trying to say. So, uh, you know, it's hard for us to see what was so bad about this, but just like we have very different social mores about nakedness, um, we have very different social mores about honoring one's parents. I mean, that's a whole commandment dedicated to honoring one's parents. It's the first commandment of the, the horizontal commandments. So you know, clearly God thinks it's important, right? There's a lot of reasons for that, but in the ancient Near Eastern 
culture, and still in a lot of cultures around the world, not our culture, but people uh, esteem their parents and honor them. And to do anything that would bring dishonor upon a parent uh, is, com- is horribly shameful. You just wouldn't do it. You just wouldn't do it. You don't do it. And so we see that, right? Ham is not honoring his father, Noah. I'm not really sure exactly what he did. You know, because it's so hard for us to get a grip on how big a deal that is to expose and aggravate the nakedness of your father, we, uh, a lot of scholars make up, you know, some make up some crazy stuff they think Ham did. But if this was habitual practice by Noah, then it wouldn't be long before Ham figured out what Noah was doing, and it's entirely possible that Ham waited for the opportunity, knowing it was coming, and on purposefully planned on doing this and did it, taking advantage of gazing upon his father's nakedness. I'll leave that right there. But as bad as it was, again, it's not so much Ham's sin as it's looking at Ham's heart. Um, what does that mean? It means that by his actions, by Ham's actions, he basically outs himself uh, as a continuation of what God called the seed of the serpent way back in Genesis 3. If you remember, God says there's going to be a continuous uh, animosity between the people of God, who he, he calls the seed of the woman. Why? Because Jesus is this, uh, eventually the seed of the woman, and all those who are in Christ are part of that whole new humanity under Jesus. And the seed of the serpent, everyone who's under Adam and entranced under the spell of Satan in the world, uh, and um, by his actions, Ham outs himself. After all that, the whole flood, everything, the awful reality of the seed of the serpent continues in his youngest son, Ham. And that's what we see unfolding here. See, because we look for the meaning of the actions involved, but the ancient Near Eastern people, they would have looked for the meaning uh, in the symbols, the symbolic nature and the patterns of what's happening, right? What do we see? We see the writer making these clear parallels back to Genesis 3. We see uh, Adam is, Adam is, uh, made, uh, is a man uh, of the ground. His name, Adam, means ground, right? So when Adam is made from the ground, it's Adam is a man uh, from Ha-Adama, the ground. Uh, and we see the same thing. It's like, you don't see it in, in English, but in, in the Hebrew, it talks about Noah becoming a man of the soil. Same sentence. Noah becomes Ha-Adama, man of the soil, linking them two together, Adam and Noah. And then what do we see from that point forward? What do we see? What did Satan do to Adam in the garden? He tricked him, caused him to sin for the purpose of exposing his nakedness, his sinful nature, and then aggravating that. And what do we see Ham do? Same thing. And so there's a similarity. There's a likeness. There's an image. Uh, You know, Jesus called out the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desire. You see Ham doing the same thing that Satan does. And what does Shem and Japheth do, right? What does God do to Adam? Covers his nakedness. What does Shem and Japheth do? Be very careful not to dishonor their father. They walk in backwards so they cover their father's nakedness. Showing what? Shem and Japheth demonstrate through their actions that they have a likeness, have an, uh, an image, a likeness, a resemblance to the father. And so we see then that play out. Why is, why is Canaan singled out a descendant of Ham? It's because God is pointing out that it's not just Ham that's cursed. It's this sin, this generational sin is going to run through his lines. And so Canaan, uh, we see as we, as we follow those lines through the rest of the Bible, we see that the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Canaan become the traditional enemies of God and God's people. They become Egypt, which held Israel in slavery. They become Canaan. They become Assyrian. They become the Philistines. They become Babylon. All the peoples that opposed God's peoples throughout the ages descend from Ham and from Canaan. And so what do we see? We see a pattern here that starts, uh, or actually continues, where we see Abel and Seth chosen by God, but not Cain. We see Shem and Japheth chosen by God, but not Ham. We see Abraham chosen by God, but not his brothers Nahor or Haran. We see Isaac, not Ishmael. We see Jacob, I have loved, but not Esau. We see Judah, not Joseph, and on and on down the line. Seeing God operate in the world. And so what's the big, big takeaway from, from these two pictures? First big takeaway. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. Righteous Noah is a sinner, big sinner. Unrighteous Ham is a sinner, big sinner. And so the, the starting point we see, everybody, as Charlie read in the law, no one follows God. No one chooses God. Everyone goes after their own way. They are all corrupt. There is no one, there's no one, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the starting block. That's the playground. That's the battlefield. But we see another big takeaway truth. What's that big takeaway truth? That God goes down into that mass of sinful humanity and graciously chooses to save some. You know, some people think that when we talk about Reformed theology, they think, ah, I can't buy that because what you're saying is that God elects some to salvation and contemns some to damnation, and these people never get a chance, and that's, that's super unfair. I can't imagine God doing that. That is a false view of Reformed, of Reformed theology, what we believe 
we believe that God makes himself known to all men. All men reject God and go their own way. And then God in his graciousness goes in among some of those all that have rejected him and saves some for himself. Why doesn't he save all? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I wish I did. It doesn't make sense to me. But clearly that's what's going on. And I, you know, it's been, it's been 18 years or so now walking with the Lord. And I'm starting to begin to believe that he's wiser and smarter and more powerful and has more knowledge than I do. So I can like kind of trust him with some of that, you know. Not in the morning, though. In the morning, I still know better than God. But usually by mid-afternoon, mid-afternoon, God's back on the, on the throne <laughs> from, from stunning defeat and hum- humiliation. <laughs> Can I get an amen? So then what's the difference? What's the difference? Is there any visible difference we can see between Noah and Ham? And really the, the biggest visible difference is Repentance. God-given repentance, when God chooses, when God saves you out of your self-willed destruction and ruthless sin, uh, you experience repentance. God saves you. Your heart becomes regenerate, and the natural response of that regenerated heart is to say, oh my, oh my gosh, I totally deserve destruction. Uh, God has God doesn't have any responsibility to give us 18 ways to heaven. It's a remarkable that he gave us even one, and I, I need a savior, and I need the covering of Christ's blood. And so that's what we see is God taking some from amongst that fallen and decrepit and corrupt humanity and then bringing them into literally a new birth, not through blood, as Nicodemus thought, but through spirit. And again, in our materialistic culture, that doesn't sound like anything, but blood is thicker than water, spirit is thicker than blood, and we have been recreated into a whole new humanity through the spirit connection that we have with Jesus. We no longer belong to the descendants of Adam, we now belong in the family tree of Jesus. And that's what eradicates sin. Now look, it can be easy for us to see these, uh, these pictures, these pictures that God is painting uh, with his historical providential paintbrush across the course of history. Um, because we live in a world that's hyper-individualistic and we're like, whoa, does that mean that your, your family origin just determines whether or not you're saved? So all of Ham's descendants are condemned? There's a real thing Generational sin is a real thing, and that's, you know, one of the terrible consequences of unbelief is that you cut off your descendants from life. That's a big deal. However, these are pictures that God is painting. It's not strictly based on family. Um, God is painting this stunning prophetic picture in this, this very passage about the future history of salvation. Uh, it's not really Noah's sin on dis- that's the focus. It's not Ham's sin that's the focus, but it's what God is going to do about that sin that's the focus. Uh, and he tells us, and he tells the devil what he's going to do right up front. Let's look at what he says. Last part. This is 
the tents of Shem. The tents of Shem is part, a big part of this prophecy or this saying, this curse that Noah utters. Uh, if, you get, if you read the textbooks, you read the religious, uh, you know, the Bible as literature textbooks, you get, this is what you get basically. This passage that we just read was written by the Israelites, you know, much later in history uh, as, as a very thinly veiled apologetic defense or a justification as to why they invaded the land of Canaan and slaughtered all those poor innocent people. Which is rather ironic because most people uh, that hold that view don't believe that there was ever a conquest of Canaan. But that's another story altogether. Uh, and it's partly true. Israel does carry out the curse on, Shan, uh, on Canaan that's, that's, that's laid out in this, in this prophecy. Uh, but it, that, even that is just a picture. Again, it's God taking, you know, taking sinful human, humanity who refused to turn to him and wiping them off the face of the map, not just for that act, but as a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the end of all days. Uh, it's a much bigger picture. And so people who think this is just really a thinly veiled apologetic are not giving God nearly enough credit because this isn't just talking about the conquest of Canaan. This is talking about God's conquest of the entire world. How so? Well, just like we can trace the ancestors of, of Ham and Canaan all the way down and see how they became the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, uh, and all of the, and the Philistines and the enemies of God's people. We can also trace the lineage of the ancestors of Shem and of Japheth, the other two brothers in this passage. Uh, so for, let's talk about Shem first. Shem literally means name in Hebrew. Can you imagine your parents giving you the name, name? <laughs> what's your name? Name? Yeah, what's your name? His name literally means name. If you meet a, uh, you know, rabbis or even Messianic Jews, they, don't, they believe you shouldn't say the name of God, Yahweh, and so they'll say Hashem, the name in Hebrew. If you, if you see them like online, they'll be talking about something, 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 Hashem, and if you don't know what they're talking about, you miss it. But that's, that's how they talk about God, because it means the name, and literally in most of the Bible, that the, the name of God uh, is a big deal. And what do we see happening in this, in this cursed prophecy? We see that of all three brothers, God only attaches his name to Shem. Look at verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He didn't say that same thing about Japheth. This is, it's God in this passage attaching his name to Shem and the people of Shem. Uh, he is electing the line of Shem to be the ones that become the visible pres presence and the rule of God on earth and the line through whom eventually the Messiah comes to crush the head of the serpent. How do we know that? If you go into next chapter, Ryan's going to talk about this next week. Chapter 10, verse 21, Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber's like the old way of saying Hebrews. That's where Hebrews came from. Shem, 
There's the people of God. They become the Israelites. They have the tabernacle. They have the temple. They have the house of God where God is worshipped. God has placed his name upon them visibly as his people, as the visible rule of God on earth. And for millennia, it was the Israelites, the family of Abraham, the tribes of Judah who were the people of God. They alone lived in the tents of God. Uh, and, and we see that as God, that was God's plan and purpose. Israel was the incubator through which all the prophecy was developed, through which the Messiah came so that he would be legible and understandable when he did come. Jepheth means enlarge or be spacious, wide open. You can see that in verse 27. It's a play on words. God says, may uh, you know, may, Je- may Jepheth be enlarged. It's a play on his own name. It means, uh, you know, so what we see, we see, of course, uh, who are the descendants of Jepheth? The descendants of Jepheth become all the Gentile nations that occupy all, all the world, really, literally from Europe all the way through Turkey and into the east. Uh, they literally, the nations of the Gentile nations of the world spread out across the whole earth. And so what is he talking about? What, is, what does it mean? What is Moses or what is Noah talking about when he says enlarging the tents of Shem so that Jeff, Japheth can enter in? The key is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 54. In this last section of Isaiah from 40 to 66, right? Isaiah is talking all about the new covenant, what God's going to do in bringing the Messiah, crushing sin, uh, and bringing the new covenant to bear on the whole world by spreading that covenant promise of salvation from Israel and out into the whole world through all the nations, right? And this is, this is what Isaiah says. He pulls back, goes to Noah and to this prophecy and he pulls on it to explain what the new covenant is and saying, he says this, sing, O barren one who did not bear and break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Israel is consistently pictured as God's wife. Uh, God, she's in labor bringing forth and bearing into the world the children of God and the Gentiles are the barren ones. Uh, Continuing, for the children of the desolate one, Gentiles, will be more than the children of her who her is married, Israel, says the Lord. And then he says this, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. It's a picture of the tent of Shem of Israel being spread so wide across the earth that all the Gentile nations are come into it. And lest we be tempted to think that Ham and his people are eternally cursed, which unfortunately often happens because Ham went into Africa, into Asia. Uh, tragically happens. Isaiah also says this, in that day, 
What does that day mean? Scholars, that day is always end times, the new covenant age. Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Everybody gets, everybody's together. Everybody's in. Everybody's in on this new deal. All those prophetic pictures were to show us these big theological truths, but at the end of the day, God puts it all back together. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus is the start of this whole new human race. And that when Jesus comes, the covenant promises of God that were always just with Israel, the tents are thrown open wide. So wide that all the Gentile nations of the earth are able to come in and be part of God's family and be under the covering of God's tent. The sons of Japheth, the sons of Shem, the sons of Ham, the sons of Canaan, everybody is invited in and grafted into this new human race through Jesus, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation under Christ. I don't know, man. What do you even say about that, you know? Here's Isaiah, again, interpreting this ancient Noahic prophecy for us, again, in in Isaiah doing it 700 years before Jesus, and he's saying that a marker of the new covenant and a marker of God's faithfulness and God's reality is that he will do this. If you want to know, Isaiah is saying, you want to know if God's really the real God? Check it out. In 700 years, the people of God, Israelites, and their God, Their belief, their religious belief was going to spread throughout the whole world so that all the nations of the earth will believe in the God of Israel. And that was a crazy promise to make. We've talked about this before. Israel didn't have any power. Israel spent most of its life as a parking lot for the Assyrian army and the the Egyptian army as they passed through to fight each other. And yet they say, our God, Yahweh, And the worship of our God is going to be over all the earth. Not Marduk, not Ra, not Zeus, not anybody, not any of the big power players of the day, but Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And so we asked, did that happen? It sure did. Only this time we see Isaiah drawing that prophecy out from the very midst of the pre-Diluvian world and bringing it forward and then bringing it forward again. God has it so planned out and so perfect and he's so powerful, he's able to tell the devil up front, check it out, we're gonna run the ball right up the middle, get ready, and he still can't stop it still wasn't able to stop it. And he never will, and he never can. And if God is that powerful, and he can do all of that, is it possible that we could just kind of settle down and trust him when our hearts get all bitter about that one thing we can't have today? 
Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you've gone all out to, to prove your word true. It's almost like head-scratching bewilderment how, um, how good we've become as a people to, uh, to, to ob- obfuscate that clarity uh, and how we're even able to do it really by ignoring by ignoring the prophetic record, by ignoring the resurrection, we're able to pile up these arguments of you know, hypothetical probability and plausible deniability, and we are able to build these towers of Babel that we climb upon to deny you. And yet, it's all foolishness. You are the God who has told us the big moves on the stage of the earth as relating to salvation You've told us these things from the very beginning. And these things have been in black and white for thousands of years. We can't help think, Lord, that you did that because you want us to know that we can trust you. You want us to not guess, but know that you are God. In our sinful hearts and when the devil tricks us and we become tempted uh, to be bitter and resentful when we are tempted to mistrust you or think you've forgotten about us or get wrapped up around the axle for some created thing we can step back and say no you are the God of creation you're the God of salvation you've laid out the plan from the beginning to the end and then you've fulfilled it And since you've fulfilled all of those other promises, we have every reason to believe that you will fulfill the promises to us. That we won't be here forever. One day we will be translated from this world into the next. And then it's going to be all good. So help us, Lord, to live today in view of that day and to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.